0: Well, I didn't get my sermon text to your church in time, so we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Samuel 17. I know that's it's not printed in your bulletin, but if you want to be turning there so you can follow along with me as I read God's Word, please do that. 1 Samuel 17, and while you're uh, looking for that, I want to tell you that um, I'm uh, so happy to be here. My wife is out of town. She couldn't be here. Uh, I've been here a couple times in the last uh, two or three years, and... Um, we certainly love getting a chance to be down here. She was very disappointed uh, that she didn't get to be here um, this morning because uh, we always love to talk about how fun it is to gather with God's people and sing His praises and then literally open the doors uh, and see the gulf and how much fun that is for us. And, and thank you for letting us be um, uh, part of your, your congregation from time to time. Also, want to thank you because we are RUF, Reform University Fellowship, is the ministry of this presbytery to the college campus at Southern Miss, and so there, in a very real sense, we are your arm um, to that campus, and I thank you for your prayers and encouragement uh, to us there. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is a very, very familiar passage. I doubt uh, that there are very many of us that haven't heard the story of David and Goliath. Um, I am going to try and read as much of the passage as possible this morning because Because the story is so familiar, and we need to remind ourselves that it is not just um, vague stories that uh, God gives us, but it is His very Word, and and His Word is revealed to us in Scripture as we have it. And so, um, I want to read uh, as much of this passage as possible, so that we don't sort of just reference the vague story of David and Goliath in our mind, but that we're being taught by the text. Uh, So, if if you'll look with me, I'm going to begin reading in verse four, and if and if uh, as time uh, because we're limited by time, i'm going to sort of skip through different parts of the passage, but I certainly encourage you to go back and read it because um, it is important to us. This is uh, god's word to us i'm going to begin reading first Samuel chapter seventeen uh, i'll start in verse four i'm sorry i'll start in verse two, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders." The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and, and he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man from yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The next few verses go on to tell us who David is, the son of Jesse and one of the the youngest of the brothers uh, of the sons of Jesse. I'm going to skip down to verse 19 where it says, Now Saul, who is the king of Israel, Saul and they all of the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines, and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge with the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. And behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words he had spoke before. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and he will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel." And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left, the house, uh, left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him and toward another and spoke in the same way. And the, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine." And Saul said to to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and there came a lion or a bear, and they took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head. He clothed him with a coat of mail. This goes on to tell us that Saul loaded David up with all of his armor. And prepared to send him out into the battle. Verse 41 says The Philistine moved forward and came near to David, with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Verse 43 And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give, you your, give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel who you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone, and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine, and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine, and he took his sword, and he drew it out of the sheath, and he killed him, and he cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath into the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shereim, to Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp, and David took the head of the Philistines, the head of the Philistine, and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, and with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. That is a lengthy portion of God's word given to us. Uh, Let's pray before we talk about it. Father, we have dark hearts and uh, dark eyes and closed ears, were it not for your grace uh, that opened them, we pray that you would open them this morning by your Holy Spirit, that we might behold wonderful things from your word, that you might use this time to show us from your word how much you love us. I pray, God, that you would shape our hearts this morning by your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are a few more recognizable stories in Scripture than the story of David and Goliath. In fact, the story's sort of taken on a life of its own, right? You, anytime you hear of a great victory uh, by an underdog, a, a team that's not supposed to go very far in a in a tournament, or a, a team that's supposed to get blown out by a, a much superior opponent, or maybe a political election in which a small unknown uh, rises up and beats um, the heavy favorite, something. Any time that somebody far less significant does defeat someone far more significant, a lot of times it's called a David and Goliath story. This semester at RUF, uh, at Southern Miss, we've been looking at the life of David. uh, And every week we try and do three things. We try and talk about how David helps us learn something about the heart of God, because David is a man after God's own heart. Each week we try and think about how learning, studying the life of David helps us to grow up because we see the life of David from adolescence, teenager, all the way through the end of his life. Studying the life of David helps us to grow up. Studying the life of David also helps us prepare for a new and better king because all of Scripture is intended to point us towards Jesus, to help us, prepare us to know that Jesus is our Savior. And so that's... Uh, what we do each week at RUF, and hopefully we'll do that this morning It's as we study David and Goliath. David and Goliath is not only one of the most recognizable stories in Scripture, it's, it's, one, of the, it's one of my favorites. It's one of the best Bible stories out there. It sells to every age, every generation. We love the story. This morning we're gonna, I want to look at three different uh, sort of categories for this text I'm borrowing these these labels, these categories from uh, Tim Keller's treatment of this passage, uh, which really opened my eyes a lot as I as I read over it this summer. Many of us have heard since our childhood that the story of David and Goliath is about courage. And I believe it is, but I want us to think in a fresh way about that. Uh, try and put away the visions of the felt boards. Where you saw in vacation Bible school, maybe as a young child, the felt boards with the huge Goliath and the small David, uh, and the, as the story was told to you. I want us to think this morning um, about courage, but I want us, I think we can do it uh, in some fresh and encouraging ways. First thing I want us to think about this morning is that a mind dominated by others produces a lack of courage. A mind dominated by others produces a lack of courage. We see a theme from the previous chapters. If you, if you look in the, in the preceding chapters in 1 Samuel, we see a theme that sort of jumps back to the forefront almost immediately. You see a few verses prior to the episode that we read this morning, there's a description of the process by which David was anointed to be the new king of Israel. God uses Samuel, his prophet, to go and find Jesse. And Jesse, this man, this Bethlehemite, he he parades all of his sons in front of Samuel, and he says, you know, one of, you, one of these is going to be the king, uh, is, going to be, is chosen by God for a very special thing, and, and, and all these great-looking, strong, um, skillful, handsome men are paraded in front of Samuel. But instead of choosing one of them, God insists that Samuel tell Jesse to retrieve the youngest, most forgettable son from the fields where he was tending sheep. Scripture tells us in in the verses, just a few verses preceding this episode of David and Goliath, that man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. David was chosen from among his brothers, not because of his stature, not because of his size, not because of his skill. Instead, God desires David. He chose David after his own heart. God chose David after his heart. God does not desire that decisions makes sense to us. He doesn't care if his decisions make sense to us. All he cares about is that his decisions are best for us. Like Israel, we would have tended to have chosen Saul as our king, as they did. And more than that, we would have chosen one of those sons of Jesse that paraded, David's older brothers. We would have chosen one of those because we tend to look on the outside. In fact, that's all we can do a lot of times. But God looks on the heart and He chooses on His terms and not our terms. God looks at the heart. So it should say something to us when we begin to read chapter 17 and what's being described to us. What's being described to us is the external picture of this giant Goliath. It tells us all about how huge he is, maybe nine feet tall. It tells us about all the great stuff he has. It tells us about all the victories he has won and is sure to win. As we read that, as we hear that, we should immediately know something is up, because God had just told us He doesn't look on the outside. He looks on the heart, and God doesn't operate how we operate. We, description, we see a description of, of great human strength and great human prowess. It should tells us it should tell us uh, that God is about to teach us something very special. This giant Goliath draws the lines between him and the people of God. He spews insults at him, he curses them, he mocks them, he taunts them. And the people, including Saul their king, were dismayed and greatly afraid. The text tells us they were terrified. The people were understandably impressed by Goliath. They were understandably depressed, depressed by their situation, and and they suspected that they would soon be oppressed as slaves because there's no way any of them were going to be able to conquer Goliath. The same people who had begged God for a king, the people who had become enamored with Saul, who was a head and shoulders above all his countrymen. Scripture tells us that Saul, their king, was a head and shoulders above all the people of Israel. He was a big, strong guy. But guess what? Now they had run across an even more imposing figure. They came... And they're standing there looking at Goliath. A mind dominated by others produces a lack of courage. Have you ever experienced that in your life the way that I do? It doesn't take long to know in our lives that things uh, scare us. If we really look at ourselves, that things keep us up at night, right? Things make us worry. We have panic attacks, some of us, about things. Some of my college students... Uh, and I'm sure some of us here we we think constantly about things, we obsess over things. Why? Because behind those things is behind those things are fears, things that make us worry, things that keep us up. We think constantly students of mine think constantly about their performance in school, and they find behind it a fear of not getting the job that they want, the fear that they won't get the job that will provide the best living or the most comfortable life that they might not ultimately please their parents and so they think about their performance in school all the time. Some students think constantly that they're about how they're eating and how much they're exercising and they find behind it the fear that they might not be desirable to others. Some of us constantly gauge in our mind the type of person that we are um, and what type of person we attract to ourselves whether it's Uh, a a spouse for those of us who are not married or just the collection of, of people that we're around. We want to attract the right type of people. We want to be the right type of person. We think about it all the time. Some of us fear being alone and it affects the way we interact with our wife or our husband. Some of us fear our marriage falling apart. Some of us fear becoming like our parents. These are sort of all things that I think directly college students deal with a lot but they're not the same they're not different than than those of us who are out of college. We still have the same things that we think about all the time and behind those things are fears. What are the situations that cause you to lose heart? What are the situations that cause you to be fearful? What are the things that drain you of your courage? Is it that you're that you're that you have unbelieving or rebellious children and you and it just you think about it all the time? Maybe fear of embarrassment, social embarrassment, professional embarrassment, losing your job or coming off as weak. A mind dominated by other things produces a lack of courage. It produces fear and it makes us do crazy things. There was a guy that I knew when I was in college who cheated his way all the way through accountancy school. And when he was forced to deal with that reality, he said, the reason I cheated was because I knew if I got out into the work world and I didn't have a good GPA, I'd lose all credibility. Isn't that that ironic that He sacrificed his credibility in college because he thought he had to have credibility later. Fear makes us do crazy things. The fear of rejection because of the wrong shape or the wrong figure produces in some of us, especially some of our ladies in college, produces such a fear that their bodies become totally misshapen in the other direction. They become emaciated and frail. When you fear loneliness, when you fear a lack of intimacy, a lot of times, I know this is true for youngsters and for college students, when you fear a lack of intimacy or loneliness, you give yourself physically to another person in a way that you regret later and you feel more alone and less cared for than even before. Fear makes us do crazy things. David's brothers, even in this passage that we just read, reacted very negatively to him. They made fun of him. They said, "You're supposed to be, don't we have a few sheep back home that you're supposed to be looking after? What about Saul, who's also very afraid? He, he offers his own daughter's hand in marriage and a fortune to someone who would do what he is supposed to do, which is represent his people. And not only that, he sends a boy out in battle against a giant. And he essentially drains the spirits of his people who he's supposed to inspire. When fear is not drawing your mind towards external things, uh, when fear is drawing your mind towards external things, it drains you. But there's another way... Uh, that fear. Uh, there's another approach to courage that we see in this passage. There's another perspective on courage. Because when fear is not drawing your attention to other things, fear can draw your attention to yourself. So much so that you can't see what's going on around you. The second thing I want to look at is that a mind dominated by self produces false courage. A mind dominated by self produces false courage. The next character in this drama that makes an attempt at dealing with fear... And this might surprise you, is Goliath. Goliath is dealing with fear. Tim Keller, citing uh, uh, a guy named Robert Alter, who's a Hebrew scholar, points out this to me in a way that I didn't really think about very much until, until, he, until he pointed it out. He says, you're missing the point in the story if you think that David is the hero and Goliath is the villain. Because the truth is, these are just two approaches to being a hero. In truth we see two alternate forms of heroism. We see in Goliath someone who actually does what the world tells us to do. Goliath actually does what the world tells us to do. He looks at himself and he looks at his circumstances. And he says in all likelihood things are going to go my way. Because I'm experienced. I'm prepared. I'm equipped. I'm dominant. I'm large. And everybody I've ever been around recognizes this about me. And folks, a lot of heroic things have been done with this mindset, right? With Goliath has physical prowess, he has technology, he has the best equipment, he has high self-esteem. Uh, we we adore this guy in our culture. We love this guy, and so they they all, they also did in this ancient culture. I, I would suggest to you that there were probably a lot of Israelites, a lot of people in the army of God who looked out and and thought to themselves, I wish he was on our side. They look at Goliath and they think, man, if by some set of circumstances I could get that guy's ear and say, listen, Goliath, Yahweh, our God, he's the real God of the universe. And, And I'm telling you, man, you are going down the wrong path, and if you will just, I'm telling you, our side is the right side, and if you come to our side you're making the right decision. And if they could have somehow convinced him of that, so that if we can imagine Goliath, while facing the Israelites, turn around and face back to the Philistines and start hurling insults at them and cursing them and cursing their gods, I think a lot of the Israelites would have leapt for joy if that would have happened. And that's exactly what we do in our culture sometimes. We think that if we have the right people on our side... If we have the right perspective, if we have the right self-esteem, things are going to be okay. That's exactly what they, the people had done with Saul, right? This man who was head and shoulders above all of Israel. That's why they loved him. Because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. Because he was skilled, because he was handsome, because he was a, a, a dynamic leader. How does the world tell us to deal with fear? They tell us, put it in perspective, right? One statistic tells us that you are way more likely to be injured or die in a car accident than you are in a plane crash. Therefore, it's unreasonable for you to be scared of flying. Don't be scared of flying. You're fine. Go for it. Put it in perspective. Relax. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath and do what you're afraid to do until it becomes easy for you. Then you'll become victorious over your fears, confident, experienced, dominant over the fears that you've vanished. Then you'll be able to do what you need to do, right? That's what the world tells us. Here's the problem. Sometimes it is as bad as you thought. And it does turn out to be a big deal. When your courage comes from the wrong categories, there's always a Goliath to your perspective, right? There's always something that's more intimidating, more, and, and can in fact harm you. I don't mean to, I don't pretend to know the type of anxiety that hurricane season produces down here. I, I, I certainly don't want to be insensitive, but you know as well as I know that sometimes it is Katrina, right? Sometimes it is as bad as we thought it could be. Sometimes when you look at the weather map, the hurricane covers the whole state. And it's bad. And the truth is, and you all know it, that one day there's going to be a Goliath to our Katrina. What about when what we need to do is absolutely without the hope of success, right? What about when the thing that is right promises to be very harmful to us? When the positive solution results in unmistakable loss, like forgiving people. Some of us are very afraid of forgiving people. I am, at times. What about giving of your time, giving your money away? Helping people without recognition? Where do we get the courage to do the right thing without sort of playing a trick on our mind thinking that it's really going to be not as bad as we thought? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in another very familiar Bible story, dealt with this same situation, right? They were faced with the stark reality and the laws of physics that fiery furnaces destroy people. And this is what they said before they went in, before they were thrown in the fiery furnace. They said, God is able to save us, but if He doesn't, we still won't do something that is clearly disobedient to Him. They, they knew that God is able to use seemingly negative circumstances like a fiery furnace to bring about glory for himself and good for his people despite the laws of warfare, the fact that nine-foot-feet giants do not get defeated by shepherd boys with rocks and sticks. David knew something about and above the visible reality. The third Thing, the third category that I want us to think about, the third thing I want us to think about courage this morning is that a mind dominated by God produces true courage. A mind dominated by other things produces a lack of courage. A mind dominated by yourself produces false courage, but a mind dominated by God produces true courage. It's not perspective on visible realities and possibilities or probabilities, it's faith. And what Eugene Peterson calls imagination. A God-dominated imagination. There's one character in the story who's keenly aware of the fact that God chooses on His own terms, right? And God works by His Spirit in ways that aren't readily evident to everybody else. Frankly, in ways that don't make sense in plain sight. Here's David. David, again, is on the periphery, right? He's outside. He's, He's not quite ready to be a real full-time soldier the way that his brothers are. He's keeping track of the sheep back home. His dad sends him out with a basket of food to check on his brothers, make sure everything's okay. But David has an imagination that's dominated by God. David has courage because God has shown him how he works, that he works through the marginalized and the weak, that he works through the people that he calls out of obscurity just like he had called David in from the field to anoint him king, and now he calls him in from the field to do something that none of us would have imagined. God doesn't operate on the same grid that we prefer, and David knows that. David has seen God deliver him from lions and bears. David knows something above the visible reality. Each of us this morning who claim Christ as their Savior should know this too. Right? We should know that we have been spared. That, that at some point we, we were blind and we were just going on our own way and certainly destined for destruction, and God stopped us. We know that God works differently. Folks, here's the deal here's, here's what you have to know about this story so that you don't fall in the trap that we so easily do when we study the Old Testament. David's not here to inspire you to face your fears. David is not here to inspire you to face your fears. David is here to remind you that God is God. He doesn't, he doesn't give the people a pep talk. David doesn't run back to the guy and say, look, things aren't as bad as they seem, okay? We're gonna, everything's going to be okay. We're going to overcome this. No big deal. David goes in there, not to convince them that, they'll, that things are going to be okay. He goes in there and he says, God of Israel is God, and he will not be mocked. And I know this, and I've seen him do stuff about it before. And he's going to do something about it here. He's not just telling them to eliminate the negative thoughts and face their fears. David knows that God is God. David knows that God uses saviors to deliver his people. He uses weak outsiders to deliver his people. You're not supposed to understand yourself as David in the story. That's not where we fit in, right? And I think some of us in our hearts know that. We're not David in the story. We're the Israelites standing back on the battle lines terrified. We don't have any hope of defeating our enemy. We just, we don't. Until someone acts on our behalf. David is not supposed to primarily be our inspiration, although it's a very exciting story. In the same way that he wasn't the inspiration of the men of Israel to fight. David wasn't their inspiration. He was their representative. David went into the battle and didn't act for them. Only he acted as them. He was their champion. In other words, if he wins, they'll be treated as winners. If he loses, they'll be treated as losers. David looked at the situation and rejoiced to know that God would not be mocked. He rejoiced to know that God uses the weak. David didn't win despite his weakness, but through his weakness. Goliath was vulnerable because of the weakness of David, right? He looked at David and says, "You come at me with sticks?" And God used that to defeat him. We are the people who benefit from the work of a representative Israel became conquerors because David fought as them. He fought as their representative. When they realize the battle is won, what did they do? They become empowered to be victorious, to act as conquerors. They go out and they, they chase the Philistines down. They conquer them and then they come back and they plunder their cities. Let me close by revisiting the three things we want to learn when we study David. The first is this. How does David tell us about the heart of God? God does not operate on, ter- on our terms, but on his terms. He chooses, he fights, he loves, he delivers, and he uses weak and broken people to ensure that His fi- it's his fight and not ours. David helps us grow up. How does he help us grow up? He helps us understand that fears are not dealt with by focusing on others or ourselves, but on focusing on God and his faithfulness and his heart. Lastly, he prepares us for a new and better king. God delights to deal with his people by way of substitutes. Hebrews 11 tells us about a lot of great and faithful men, but at the end it tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The author and champion is another way to translate it, of our faith. Folks, the greatest nightmare that you and I can face... It is to go before God responsible for all of our shortcomings and our failures. Your failures, your sins, the hurts you caused, the hurts you endured from others, the times that people have sinned against you, and all of that weight that it creates in your heart, the time that you've sinned against others, and the burden that that creates for you. You have plenty of good reasons not to run into the valley. You have lots of great reasons not to run into the valley. And I can't offer you anything to help you do that. No technique, no positive thinking, no way to get better perspective. In fact, it's probably worse than you think. But here's the good news. What I can tell you is that Jesus, for the joy set before Him, ran into the valley on your behalf. He went in before God and He answered for those of us who have put our faith in Him. He fought our battle for us. Isaiah 54 says, fear not. It doesn't say fear not because things aren't as bad as you think. It says fear not because your Redeemer is your husband. Don't think that if you're as brave as David, you'll be blessed by God or that if you begin to suppress your fears through self-esteem, you'll somehow begin to live the blessed life once you get it. Here's the deal. Jesus came not just to be brave for you, but to be brave as you in your place. Romans 8.37 says we're more than conquerors through him. Because of what Jesus has done, we can now advance like the Israelites did, conquering sin and plundering. You will have the courage that David had, not by getting inspired to try harder, but by delighting in what Jesus has done for you in your place as your champion. Embracing and believing that is what the Bible is all about. Folks, that's what life is all about. My question for you this morning is, will you believe that about Christ? Let's pray. Father, we need you to write these truths on our heart because we don't want to believe them, because Goliath loomed large. I pray that you would do that for us this morning, for Christ's sake. Amen.